The scripture for today is from John's Gospel, the 14th chapter, verses 1 through 14. Jesus is speaking to the eleven, and we overhear when he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many homes. If it weren't so, would I have told you I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be there also. You know where I go, and you know the way. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father that that will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you such a long time, and do you not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I tell you, I speak not from myself, but the Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Most certainly I tell you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And he will do greater works than these, because I am going to my Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Will you bow with me for a moment of prayer? Dear God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. It has been 10 Sundays now since most of the U.S. has been sheltering at home to slow the spread of the novel coronavirus that has infected over 4.2 million people worldwide and has killed over 290,000. Here in the U.S., 1.4 million people have been infected and over 83,000 have died. Slowly, most countries are beginning to open with careful safeguards in place. The original estimates of infection and death without mitigation were thousands of times higher, giving us some consolation that our social distancing, careful hygiene practices, and staying at home have in fact been effective in battling this deadly virus. Most of us can say with a grateful heart, Thank you for the blessing of home sweet home. But my heart aches for those who are homeless or who live in a home that is not safe as we continue to navigate these dark waters of this pandemic. The comforting words Jesus speaks at the beginning of our preaching text for today with the assurance that Jesus is preparing a place for his creation nestled in the very home of the Father is an important word of hope for us all. Now, some translations of this text say we can expect a room or a home or even a mansion. But the truth is, Jesus isn't talking about real estate. 
He is promising a living relationship with God. And that is a word of hope indeed. And yet, as we realize that the virus still has the upper hand with no vaccine at the ready, and treatment is mostly managing symptoms as best we can, the honesty that we hear from Thomas and Philip is also a valid reflection of how most of us are feeling today. Over the years, I've read this portion of Scripture from the 14th chapter of John at funerals to celebrate the wonderful promise that Jesus has a place readied and prepared. But the text has much more that demands our attention today. Perhaps the best choice for us as we hear and wrestle with the complexities of this passage is to literally imitate the bold honesty of Thomas who tells Jesus, we don't know, and the longing of Philip who asks for a sign. Our text opens with Jesus attempting to reassure his disciples. Remember, he had washed their feet and eaten with the twelve. Jesus foretold that he would be betrayed by Judas and that his loyal Peter, Peter the rock man, would deny him three times. Jesus has commanded his disciples to keep on loving each other, even as he predicts his own departure. No wonder the disciples are upset and confused. Well, who can be trusted? What does Jesus mean that he is going somewhere that they cannot come? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Comforting words, to be sure. But think about what the disciples have to trouble them. Jesus has spoken of betrayal and death. He has told them that he himself is troubled in his spirit. Judas is at that moment on his way to set Jesus up for arrest. The disciples have every justification to imagine danger lurking in the shadows, not only for Jesus, but for themselves as well. And Jesus had been very clear with them. I'll be with you a little while longer. Where I'm going, you cannot come. For disciples who have left everything to follow Jesus, it must have been terribly disorienting to hear Jesus tell them that he's leaving. So Jesus explains the nature of the ongoing relationship he is offering. In my Father's house are many homes. Now the Latin Vulgate translates the word for home as mansions. And the King James follows suit. In my father's house are many mansions. This language is familiar to many older Christians, but homes is really a better translation. You see, the point isn't that the space will be lavish, but that there will be a place for all with room to spare. The word homes also has to do with relationships. The Greek word for home is the noun form of the verb usually translated abide or abiding. Jesus uses this word to describe close relationships, abiding with one another. So what Jesus is promising is not only a home in heaven, but also an intimate abiding relationship with God through Jesus right now. But both Thomas and Philip continue to be troubled. Thomas first says straight out, but we don't know. We don't know where you're going. We don't know how to stay on the way or even to find the trailhead. It almost feels like Thomas is saying, Jesus, get real, please. We don't have much time. 
A scene from the old TV show Gunsmoke comes to mind. You know, the hastily deputized posse is getting ready to jump on their waiting horses, seeking a killer that is getting, that is gonna get away, and they fear that the trail has become cold, making it too late to find the culprit. Thomas and Philip are both puzzled about how to follow, how to spot the trail when they don't know where Jesus is going or or what the Father looks like. Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? You've got to admire Thomas's questioning honesty. Remember, we saw that same honesty after the resurrection. He didn't believe the testimony of those who claimed to have seen the risen Christ. And he was bold to tell them that he didn't believe. Here, he does not understand the way and is bold to ask for clarification. Thomas doesn't understand, but is willing to risk embarrassment in truth, in pursuit of the truth. And then Jesus responds with this beautiful self-disclosure. I am the way, the truth, and the life. How is Jesus the way? Biblical scholar William Barclay reminds us that if we ask directions from someone who tells us to go down the street and turn left and go down two more blocks and turn right and then turn left again, the likelihood is that we're going to get lost. However, if the person simply steps to us and takes us by the hand and leads us down the street and to the left and to the right and on through, we will arrive at our destination that person then becomes for us the way. Jesus doesn't simply point to the Father, but is himself the pathway to the Father. How is Jesus the truth? What is the truth? John 8.32 tells us the truth is what sets us free. Jesus is truth in the flesh and will leave us in the hands of the Spirit of truth, the Comforter, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the opposite of evil and the devil about whom Jesus says there's no truth in him. How then is Jesus the life? For the Jewish people, we know that the Torah was the book of life. It instructed people in life-giving faith and practice. Now Jesus becomes the life giver. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see, Jesus acknowledges the disciples' fear without endorsing it. Instead of making their fear the focus, Jesus calls them into faith. That call applies to us today. Jesus calls the disciples to believe not because of the situation, but in spite of it, to be sure of things hoped for, to be convicted of things not yet seen. Jesus is on a roll. And then Philip wants a sign. Show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Sounds just like what King Herod demands when Jesus is brought before the king during the hurried trial before the crucifixion. Tim Rice penned the words for Andrew Lloyd Webber's score for the flamboyant puppet Jewish king in the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. Two years ago, Alice Cooper played Herod in the TV live concert, and he sang to Jesus, So you are the Christ. You're the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. Feed my household with this bread. You can do it on your head, or has something gone wrong? 
Jesus, why do you take so long? Come on, you king of the Jews. Philip was not so disrespectful, but he asked the same question of Jesus. Lord, show us the Father. Jesus rebukes Philip, but his rebuke is gentle. He knows that Philip can't quite understand how truly Jesus and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Note this emphasis on relationship. Jesus' oneness with the Father is is now rooted in the Jewish understanding that an emissary bears the identity and speaks with the authority of the sender, has a close relationship with the sender, literally understands the mind and the heart of the sender, and is faithful to comply with the sender's will. Then Jesus opens his heart a little wider, and he says, Believe what I say, or else believe me for the work's sake. Can't you just imagine Thomas and Philip and the others with them thinking back over the works that Jesus has accomplished? What do these works say about Jesus, about the Father? Remember, water to wine, dead Lazarus raised to life, A little boy's brown bag lunch of loaves and fishes turns into a banquet for 5,000. The healing of the man who everyone in the community knows that was born blind. Works that bring healing, delight, abundance, life itself. These would be the works of God. Father and Son. The disciples will not fully understand Jesus until after the resurrection, but Jesus is saying that Philip and the other disciples can, for the moment, base their belief on the signs that they have seen with their own eyes. Jesus' signs in the Gospel of John are important because they reveal the Lord's glory. They help people to understand who he is, and they make possible for people then to believe in him. And Jesus isn't through. Here is the absolute stunner of of this passage. All those works that we were just encouraged to recall along with Philip and Thomas and the other disciples will be small potatoes compared to what we will do. He who believes in me will do even greater works. Jesus promises his assistance, his support, and access to his power. Given the magnitude of the signs that Jesus has worked in chapters 2 through 11, this is a remarkable promise. It is, however, understandable when we consider that Jesus' earthly ministry was limited to a few years in a small out-of-the-way place. But Jesus' disciples will go into all the world empowered by the Holy Spirit. They will do so for centuries. The fulfillment of Jesus' promise began on Pentecost, where Peter and the apostles baptized 3,000 people. And we see the promises being fulfilled over and over again through the work of the church even to today. And we can expect Jesus to continue fulfilling the promise until he comes again. So think about it. Water to wine. Have you seen anything like that today? Well, I have. 
We have a group of ladies here in this congregation that take old, worn-out pillowcases and turn them into beautiful dresses that we send all over the world for children to wear. And then that same group of ladies uses, you have been using their outstanding sewing skills and have literally taken scraps of fabric and turned them into life-saving face masks that we all need. My friend Betty Kramer made this one for me. Greater works. Raising the dead. Queens, New York, Jaden Hardwar, eight years old, had only a mild fever back on April 23rd. But he kept getting sicker and sicker, and by the 29th, he was lying in his bed and feverish, watching a Pokemon TV show, and he simply cries out, Mommy! And the family came rushing, and when they got to his bedside, the boy had stopped breathing. His face was starting to turn blue, and his 15-year-old brother, who was a Boy Scout, jumped up on the bed and began performing chest compressions, stopping only when the ambulance arrived. Jaden was then taken to Cohen Hospital, where he was put on a mechanical ventilator for three days, and then he began to improve. Just recently, the little boy has begun to open his eyes and smile at his parents during those familiar video chats arranged by the nurses. And a few days ago, Jaden said, I love you, Mommy. Thousands of lives are saved every year by people who know CPR. Greater works. Feeding miracles. Now, I know that the super-rich are often self-absorbed and seemingly clueless about the realities most folks are facing. But the recent response by the rich and famous, I think, is a miracle in itself. A recent U.S. News and World Report article tells about some truly impressive gifts made because of the food insecurity caused by this pandemic. Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter, gave $1 billion to relief efforts. That was one-third of his total wealth. Jeff Bezos, Amazon CEO, gave $100 million to a variety of food banks. Oprah, gave $1 million to America's Food Fund. And Chef Jose Andre has served more than 750,000 meals through the nonprofit World Central Kitchen during the pandemic, and the list goes on and on. Greater works. Healing the blind. Did you know that cataracts are the leading cause of blindness in the U.S.? A cataract is a clouding of the normally clear lens of your eye. People tell me it's like looking through an increasingly frosty or fogged up window, and left untreated will cause blindness. But the good news is that cataract surgery can successfully treat this condition. Over 2 million cataract surgeries are performed each year in the U.S., Greater works. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Did you know that because of this verse, many Christians conclude their prayers with the formula, in Jesus' name, amen? The assumption seems to be that if they include the formula, they can expect Jesus to do what they ask. But if that assumption were true, it would put deadly power in the hands of the person offering the prayer and and tie Jesus' hands so that he could not exercise discretion. That isn't the intent of that verse. Jesus 
has to do, Jesus' point has to do with praying in accordance with his name. To pray in Jesus' name requires that we first try to understand Jesus' mind so that our prayers represent his will as closely as possible. To pray in Jesus' name is to bring our prayers into accord with the essential character of Jesus. Praying in Jesus' name is not a matter of whether we include the formula in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer. It is rather a matter of changed behavior, of bringing our lives and the actions of our hearts into congruence with Jesus' will. But please hear this important word of caution. This can also be a terribly difficult word for most of us to hear. For who among us has not prayed only to have those heartfelt prayers go unanswered? Hearts have been broken, trust shattered by Jesus' perceived failure to keep his promise. Usually we come up with ways to explain this all away, usually words that blame the unsuccessful prayer for not being fully in Jesus' name, or praying in accordance with Jesus' will, or doubting, or being impatient, or not being able to see the real answer to prayer. These all may be accurate, but not very helpful when our hearts are broken and hurting. I believe that we all can and must pray honestly the desires of our hearts. That's all we can do. Because like Thomas and Philip, there's room in the relationship we have with the Lord for the honest acknowledgement of our confusion, of our, our lack of power, our doubt, our frustration, when our requests seem to go unheard. And what young person has not felt this same way with her parents or teachers? What spouse has not known this grief? Who has not had to deal, whoever has, whoever has dealt with bureaucracy, we often come away with the same kinds of feelings. Who has not asked God to intervene in a life and death situation only to end up with death as the result? But in most of those human experiences, trust somehow survives because of prior relationships. Even when prayers go unanswered, Jesus is still with us. The relationship continues. The message for us, as for our honest forebears, may well be to look again at the facts before us. Think again about the great works and the greater works, the blessings that have been accomplished for the human healing, delight, and abundance. The Father is at work among us through the Son and the Holy Spirit. God is always faithful to the relationship. In this time of heightened anxiety, as our state, nation, and world slowly reopen, it is important to remember that true peace, the peace of the gospel, does not come from our attempts to protect ourselves from all earthly harm. No leader, vaccine, or test can truly bring us peace. These are important and necessary measures for the flourishing of life in this world, but they do not bring the peace of Christ. In John 14, Jesus addresses all the troubled disciples and calls on them to believe in God, whose love and works they and we by faith have concretely seen in the person of Jesus. 
Jesus invites the disciples to find peace in his trustworthiness despite the building storm clouds. Since Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the true door into the sheepfold where life abounds, in all those places where truth and life are served, we can see God, hear words of comfort and promise, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In the Father's house, there are many mansions, many rooms, many homes. There is a place for all with room to spare. That is the simple truth about the power of place. There is a place for you in the very heart of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.